Hello, friends and comrades. Uh, before we get uh, going tonight, uh, we're going to do a quick uh, little advert for you. Um, I was here in the bunker last night enjoying a baby boy stout from Two Stones to uh, celebrate Bernie's victory in New Hampshire. And then I realized uh, as I was going to cut this uh, opening, uh, my friend Greg is uh, bringing me some pony boys from Two Stones. Thank you, Greg. You're welcome, Rob. Matter of fact, that's the freshest pony boy you can get. Canned today, in fact. This, this pony boy was canned today. Yeah. Mm. Delicious. And as you say, you're going to do 18 or 20. You should think about pony boy. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would stick more with 10 or 12, but, you know. The stout, I can only do one. I only did one. Yeah. Well. It's sticky. I want to thank everybody at Two Stones for giving Greg something to do on his days off and uh thank him for this free beer you know what they say at two stones everything we don't drink we can correct neighbors comrades and friends this is the highlands bunker podcast uh, the only podcast where Carl and I own the means of production. Uh, we're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're fighting a guerrilla war against the oligarchs and the elites of the Delaware Way. And I'm very excited um, to introduce our guest today is uh, Professor Yasser Payne. Dr. Payne is an associate professor of sociology, Africana studies, and criminal justice at the University of Delaware. He specializes in ethnographic research, specifically a framework known as Street Par or participatory action research. Um, Dr. Payne, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rob. I really appreciate it. Definitely. Yeah. We talked to um, we talked to Eugene Young yes. uh, a week or two ago, and we were just talking about the people we've had in and what kind of what we had planned, and he said, uh, have you talked to Dr. Yasser Payne? <laughs> and I was like, no. He was like, you got to talk to you. I, like he, he blew I up. Um, but yeah, he, he, he basically said that uh, you knew everything that was going on. And if we needed to get a thousand people in the street tomorrow, you could do it in a day. <laughs> he did say that. So we might have to hold. And if, if it ever comes to that, we might have to hold you to that. I hear that. <laughs> <sighs> now, I can definitely say we are on the ground. We are um, for a research program, a community engaged research program. Um, we are probably among. Uh, the most organized, uh, uh, I would say, arguably largest in terms of research activist group. And there are a number of them. There are dozens of them throughout the country. Um, and particularly the kind of PAR that I do, or participatory action research, is street PAR. And we coined that, we created that, we fashioned that here uh, in Wilmington. Um, I mean, the first place that I actually launched it was my dissertation in, in Harlem, in, in Patterson, New Jersey. But it was really in Wilmington that we perfected that organizing model. Um, and more specifically, street PAR is when formal researchers or, or scholars or professors or whatever um, take men and women involved with the criminal justice system and or the streets um, and train them like a like a doctoral student, train them, you know, with a real research experience. And with a number of organizations that I've worked with and partnered with on the ground where we've done Street Par, um, particularly the Achievement Center or the Hope Commission, but others, um, Street Par in those instances were used as a re-entry program. So my thing is, hey, let me meet you. Don't really care what you did as long as I, I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned 
um, that you're interested not only in learning about your problems, studying your problems, and then also let's now organize around your problems. Um, one of the most valuable thing I tell these communities that you have is your data, like hands down, particularly in this digital age. Um, keep in mind, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm saying this literally, I say this inside neighborhoods all the time, um, their information, their data, particularly from an academic or university or research perspective, um, just in the social sciences alone, um, and definitely arts and humanities, um, is a multi-billion dollar affair. Right? University of Delaware, where I'm at, um, with tons of, you know, dozens of universities, but UD in particular, we get millions of dollars each year to study poor black people, right? Um, then, and not to mention all the programs and, you know, service, uh, not only programs, organizations, services that are organized around this population, right? So I, 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 I say, hey, you know, boom, if you're interested, if you really want to understand what's going on, if you, if you also want to document it empirically, right, um, at the highest form of of our educational standards, if you want to acquire some real skill sets, reading, writing, data analysis, um, learning how to organize an argument, I'll take you on the road. Let's hit up a bunch of academic conferences. A bunch of us just came back from San Francisco. Um, you know, let's put these experiences now on your CV, you know, data now, run a regression, do content analysis, hang out with me for about three to five years like a doctoral student with all of these. And this is how we prepare doc students. I mean, literally, that's, I mean, there's the classroom experience too. Um, but outside of that, where the rubber hits the road is, you know, is now jumping on a professor's uh, or scholar's research project and really learning the nuts and bolts. That's how you get prepared. Right. So I said, why don't we do that in the streets? Not to mention who knows more or better about their stories than they do. Right. And 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 so, you know, I'm I'm also part of the machine. I'm also exploiting their stories. I also say that when I'm in neighborhoods, too, um, I'm very difficult to kind of get out of this exploitive model or system that we call research. But in the meantime, between time, let's train them. Let's have them speak at city council. Let's bring them down to legislative hall. And, and long story short, that's the kind of thing we've been doing um, with some degree of success over the last 10 years. Yeah, so before we get into um, sort of the nuts and bolts of it, because I'm fascinated from, from sort of the beginning to the end, from sort of coming up with the idea of defining street and then, and then the process uh, of identifying people and pulling them in and having them basically be the teams that you're working with. Yes, sir. Um, but before we do that, we always kind of cover um, sort of your background because I think it's cool to learn where people came from and how they were brought up and how those experiences may or may not have um, kind of triggered them into either organizing, activism, academia, whatever, journalism, yeah. uh, politics. Um, so, yeah, where, where, where'd you grow up? Ah, great question. Um, so originally born in Harlem, New York City, Flower Hospital, no longer is open. Um, grew up in Harlem River Projects. Um, I do come from, you know, my doctoral advisor, an older Jewish woman, said to me once, or to, you know, to, to her doctoral students, um, your research program is oftentimes connected to your biography. So um, even if it isn't a one-to-one -one match, you know, there's something about what you're studying that has a lot to do with who you are in your life and all of that. So with that said, I study the streets. I do come from one of those families. Um, mommy, daddy, my three older brothers, youngest of four, um, were all involved to the streets, involved in the streets. Um, you know, 
and my parents who were both passed away. <laughs> so I talk about this more freely now. Mark Nadone wrote a really good piece in Delaware today a few years ago, um, capturing like how I grew up and all of that. But, um, you know, so I grew up seeing a lot, you know, interestingly enough. My parents did, were able to acquire a lot, at least in comparison to most in terms of, so they were higher on the totem pole, if you will. Um, when I was young, um, real young, they purchased a, a beautiful home, an upper middle class white neighborhood. Keep in mind, my father was on his own by the time he was 13 years old from Theodore, Alabama. His older brother was on his own by the time he was 13, right? It was, they were extremely poor, shack-like conditions. Um, my mom was on her own by the time she was 16 years old. Her mother, my grandmother, passed away when she was four, right? And um, they were experiencing, you know, extreme economic poverty, to say the least, to put it lightly. Um, they both eventually met in Harlem. They were hard parents, you know. Uh, didn't take no mess. My father was a very violent man. Um, eighth grade education. Um, was a bodyguard for Malcolm X. Around a lot of, I was around a lot of revolutionary, you know, Nation of Islam. Yeah, all those kind of guys growing up. Um, you know, you had, you had, you had, you had, you have, particularly in a place like Harlem, um, you have a bunch of different groups. Some have more national reputation, like a Nation of Islam, but Nation of Islam, Five Percenters, um, the Black Church, um, you have Hebrew Israelites, you have a number of really revolutionary, radical, angry, um, and I think. A lot of it makes sense. I don't, I'm not trying to disparage the anger. But I was around all of that. Um, we did move the family out to a white neighborhood. They began to leave, you know, shortly after. <laughs> I won't say within the next year or two. But we were the first black family that showed up. Um, what year was that? I was, I was young. I was probably in the late 1970s okay. or, or somewhere around there. Yeah, we must be about the same age. Okay, I'm 44. I'm 45. Just don't Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, 80s, you know, all of that. So I came up, but I, I spent a lot of my time as a child in Harlem, right? So we lived there. I went to school there. I went to some pretty tough schools, all of them, very violent, even though, you know, it was interesting the way they uh, racialized schooling in North New Jersey. Um, from elementary to high school, very tough schools. I was always in AP classes, though. It's a form of coping. Always did well in school. And it was always positively reinforced. I didn't know black people in, from the hood or whatever didn't like learning until I went to college. I didn't know that was a thing because I never saw any instance of that there. That's why in my mind, I'm so motivated to train guys that are from the streets or prisons or they've done anything that you can imagine. In my mind, I know they want to learn just based on my experience, right? It wasn't that, that and definitely when I started working on my doctoral, uh, my doctorate, I, that's when I realized Wow, this is a whole area of study. Meeting, and it was black folk uh, who coined the term literally acting white theory. 1987, 8, John Ogbu, Nithium Fordham, they did a study in Washington, D.C. Um, John Ogbu is Nigerian, so maybe that shifted his perspective. And they began to argue that the kids in the high school they were doing their study in didn't like learning because they associated it with acting white. How did you, I mean, you know, you, and we'll get into sort of the definition of the street, I guess. But um, being around that violence and seeing sort of the same stuff that's going on now and it perpetuates. Yeah. Um, 
how did it not how did that um that not strike you so you used it you mentioned it using sort of academics as a coping mechanism yeah. maybe getting away from it uh, having more stuff on your mind heavy ideas um so that sort of uh acting white um virus never got to you how did that do you, do you ever think about that or do you just feel like i that my coping mechanism was to dive into academics no, I didn't think. I don't think it actually got to anyone or most people. I never met anyone who doesn't want to learn in the hood. And I grew up in around the hood, and in the hood my whole life. I also ran around the streets too. But my point is, so my argument, I, I get what you're saying. So I understand your question. I didn't um, know if it was real. If if you're saying it's a sort of a phony idea, or if it is sort of while it's not true necessarily. It's not true. There are there's threads <laughs> of it. Yes, I mean obviously it's not true. I guess. Um, how did you not get tied into this sort of phony idea? You know, the, the Nigerian yeah. academic, you said said that it was a, whether or not you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, there were folks who had an aversion to academics because of reasons, whatever those reasons are. You yeah. didn't seem to have that. So I, I would say, so they didn't have, so it's kind of like some scholars that I, I, I do a lot of work with down at the University of Maryland in their urban ed department. Uh, one of the scholars there, Dr. Tara Brown, she makes the argument, um, um, powerful argument right learning and wanting to do well um, in school but definitely learning the act of learning or education that is most fundamental and essential level that is a biological act it would be impossible for a human organism to not to want to learn right um and, I, and when she said that i was you know she was a conference and she was speak i was like wow and then to see you know have an opportunity to hang out with their students and and, and um, share some of my perspective. And I work down there. We look at the school to prison pipeline here. Street par is based on um, the argument essentially that the acting white theory doesn't hold any water. If you look at empirical studies around acting white theory, very few of them actually provide the empirical evidence. So it's what we call the reified idea, right? Or concept or theory. Sounds like it makes sense, but we can't find a whole lot of empirical evidence for it, right? And black folk might say that too, right? I haven't heard a whole lot, not in these communities. Now, they don't like the curriculum. That's true. They do feel, find it to be disempowering, right? They do disengage as a consequence. But that has very little to do with their attitudes, which we test for. One of the few research programs in the country that tests inside these neighborhoods at large community samples, particularly their attitudes towards learning. Right? We just presented uh, a lot of our ed data at AI DuPont a few, uh, uh, maybe about two weeks ago. Right. Where we're, you know, so we have a number of the Wilmington students who don't do well, who go to that school. Very nice school, interestingly enough, in Greenville. But the population it serves, obviously, are from poor black neighborhoods and brown neighborhoods for the most part. Right. So and we're showing them. Right. So and then we show them the data in terms of what do they think about school or learning? Right? What's, what's why I say send me your send me whoever you your quote unquote worst, the shooters, ones who've been in prison, the ones who dropped out. Right. And I'm going to expose them to one of the highest educational activities uh, 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 by our standards in the world. And I'm, I'm watching them perform. I bring, you know, if they, any, anywhere they want to go along the educational track, from the prison cell to the PhD, right? We promise that. And they're doing the work. We're providing them a little roadmap and, and obviously the network. Um, but they're earning every way. Matter of fact, you're going to have to work three times as hard to get half as much, right? We're constantly saying this. So my point is, I'm only trying to make the, the argument, and I get what you're saying, and we're actually testing the thesis. Not, I'm not just saying it from personal experience, um, but I've found very little to no one who actually 
did not like learning. They had an inversion to the process. The school is designed to fail, one of our name of our articles. Um, it's nothing empowering. You're teaching to the test. Uh, it's a culture. It's a hostile learning environment. 85, 90% of the school teachers uh, are, are, are white women, right, who are not from these neighborhoods. Learning is cultural. Even the math on SAT tests, that's cultural. The very items you identify, how you think about learning, how you define the construct, what is it like? So at what point in the metric do you learn? Who gets to determine that? Right? And this is the kind of stuff that we talk about in the research program. Take your information back. It is used to colonize. It is used to undermine. Snatching the culture, the language, the educational standard, that's, all, that's been used for, for, for thousands of years. Right. Creating school systems and sitting in. Right? Interestingly enough, the same woman at the presentation, the University of Delaware said this, you know, so you have all of these uh, uh, outsiders, per se. Right. Uh, um, professional and or racial and, and right. Teaching the children. We know learning is cultural. It matters who's in the space. So that's part of the reason, not exclusively, that I get a different reaction from those folk. They show up. They're going to get trained harder. Right. But I'm but I understand that it's cultural. She says, she says, she says, Dr. Tara White, would we ever tolerate 85 to 90% of white students, teachers to be Chinese American? No, black people will be outraged. That's what she said. It was funny, proud laugh. It's like, what? who would do that? Right? Would we ever tolerate 95% uh, 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 of, 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 of the school teachers of, of, of white Jewish children, right, to be non-Jewish? Yeah, that's what you said. I mean, we talk about that not only in the education system, but all across the social spectrum. All of these mechanisms are are designed for one kind of person. Uh, yes, sir. Not only are they designed for one kind of person, but they're also implicitly or explicitly sometimes designed not for the other person, yeah. not for the other population of people. So, yeah, I mean, we it, it's... When you start talking about it, you realize it's an education and it's across the absolutely. Divide. To answer your question more statedly, though, I I grab I think I learned to love school in the way that I, I always did well. I love writing. I love the whole concept and process that always fascinated me. It's always positively reinforced inside a place like Harlem, which I uh, my father stopped us from being in Harlem. Me and my other brother named El Hodge was getting too close with our friends. We were doing a lot. You know, by the time we were like 13 or 14, he slowed that down. My friends were selling crack. They were going to jail. Um, and we were running around, probably 20, 30 of us, doing whatever you can imagine yeah, at that, that young age. That was right age. in that time pocket, too. Yeah. Um, but it was always positively reinforced, being well-read in the community. And, and, and so, right, so I, had, I took an IQ test, I guess we all do, in first grade. And I, just, I don't even remember what I got. I just remember everyone making such a big deal, including my parents, right? And... um. And so I remember early on doing well in school. I, I had that positive reinforcement. And I just, in looking back, that was foundational in, in, in a lot of ways. And I always just trying to make my parents feel happy. I was trying to get their approval. There were a lot of problems in the home, right? So if you live in the streets, lots of ups and downs, right? So we got the nice home, but eventually, you know, things went away. We kept the home, though, but people went to jail, lost money. It's like this seesaw, right? And hard times came, right? And even though we had a home there, you know, rats, roaches, mice running around as a little kid, domestic violence, struggled with that. Um, seen a little bit of everything in my home and out of my home. Um, definitely in a community like Harlem, because after school, that's where we go, Harlem. We stay there at 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night, 
and then we come home. That was the cycle. Weekends were in Harlem. Summers in Harlem. You know, my my family owned several businesses in Harlem, particularly in 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 in, in the Main Street area or the downtown area, 125th and 7th, right? And at that time, black folk owned their property, wasn't gentrified. So it was us and a lot of other folk. We own, now if you go there, there's a bank, you know, and all that, you know. Um, but in any event, another, right. another common theme. I take my friends from Wilmington, from the team, we go to Harlem, we see my family and all of that, and I take them to 125th and 7th. My family owned all of these stores back then. Payne, oh, they call him Chief? My father, what? The... The Preachers, the local newspaper, Amsterdam uh, News, which is a popular black Harlem newspaper. Other newspapers always ran stories on my father. He threw the big Christmas parties. So my other brothers and all of them do that as well. Every Thanksgiving, Christmas. And, and keep in mind, there were many years I got no birthday or Christmas gifts because times were hard. But every Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year's, and Easter, my parents, who stayed together to the end, um, made sure they, they poured thousands of dollars and made sure Harlem got gifts. It's, it's interesting, and I don't want to skip to the end, but I'll, give a, I'll give a little thing that, that really struck me <clears throat> is um, when I was looking at the results of, I think it's the 2010-11 um, work you did, while sort of economic um, opportunity and low economic circumstances can really perpetuate the violence yeah. uh, and, your, and your interaction with violence, those same people have a very strong sense of community, yeah. very yes, strong yes, so sir. social health, yes, sir. and how and willingness to work with each other. Yes, sir. And so this, and what you're describing, and Harlem is obviously world renowned for that yes. because it's the, the capital of black people. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, isn't it? <laughs> That's what we say. There, uh, so. <laughs> so so let's get into it. So uh, participatory action research wasn't yes, that wasn't necessarily a new concept but no. the concept of defining the street trying to define that term and who would fit into that term and where um and then identifying those folks give us give us like the 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 definition and sort of the the groundwork for it yeah street i'll say par participatory action research was coined uh, by a social psychologist by the name of um, dr kurt lewin he's very famous in the field of psychology um, a white Jewish scholar, uh, 1946, in the Journal of Social Issues is where he first uses that language at. Um, interestingly enough, um, for what it's worth, Kurt Lewin um, then has a very famous social psychologist student by the name of Morton Deutsch, who was at Columbia. Uh, he passed away last few years ago. Um, right? Morton Deutsch also then has a doctoral student by the name of Michelle Fine. Right? And then Michelle Fine as a student by the name of Yasser Payne. So I'm fourth dimension par in terms of its original creation. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's an accident or a coincidence. Um, you know, and then I, so I was trained in par and I thought actually most doctoral students are or could if they wanted to, but I didn't realize until I got to UD in Delaware how fortunate I was in the training. And, Cause the academy doesn't necessarily support par, it doesn't have a mechanism for it. But my network from New York provided me the training and the network and the foundation to do it here, right? So my thing was PAR is great. It's mostly done inside um, schools, right? Um, you can just, it's because there's a natural infrastructure there and you can make that happen. Um, but schools, I would also argue in the field of public health, They've, they have a participatory component because they got to get on the ground, environmental disasters or whatever to figure out what's going on and you got to work with folk, right? So it's always open there. Um, people did par in essence before 1946, 
The language is in 1946. I would argue Du Bois, W.B. Du Bois engaged in participatory work, particularly this 1899 Philadelphia Negro, very on the ground, thousands of people involved with this. He's looking at Black Philadelphia in the Seventh Ward, I believe. Um, and if you read Black Philadelphia back, I mean, if you look, it's, it's called Philadelphia Negro. If you read it, it's eight, late 1800s. And if you read it and take out all the dates, right, it kind of reads and feels like Philadelphia today, right? A lot of the same streets, ex- issues, crimes, right? And he's talking about the late 1800s, right? He does, he does, he does a lot more uh, participatory work, I would argue, um, in essence, in Souls of Black Folk. Um, he's conducting a lot of interviews in the South. You see how poor black people are living. He's having very gendered and intersectional, inter- intersectional analysis. He's offering it in a very thick and, and, and kinds of ways. And there he talks about the double consciousness theory um, that, that cuts across the black experience, right? So par was done before him. Nonetheless, right, you do have folk still doing it after the 40s, really trying to formulate it. I believe in the 1950s, and I'm going to blank on the author, um, you, you, you have an, you have a, you have a groundbreaking piece that comes out called Convict as Researcher, right? That's like, wow. You know, so people are now writing about this, right, in a way, right? So keep in mind, the most radical forms of par were actually done in Central and South America. I, 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 I BS you not. Uh, you can uh, say bullshit in there if you want. Okay. Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, right? right? He comes from the field of public health. He was a medical yeah, doctor, that's right? right? Um, 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 they launched their PAR project, full scale too, right? It's called the Literacy Brigade. Google it, right? So they're literally training thousands of folk, and their PAR took the form of literacy. You know, so they went from a 50% before the war to 100% literacy rate or nearby, right? Still one of the highest in the world, right? Uh, um, because of their PAR project. Their action was war, right? Uh, um, but they were training poor people to train poor people all over the hillside. They were using their own indigenous readings and writings, right? Which was inspiring and empowering, right? In a way, right? So not only, but it began to flood throughout Central and South America, Guatemala, right? Brazil, where you have Paulo Freire, and they jailed him, right? And almost assassinated him and then exiled him out the country. One of the, one of the foundational par scholars in the 1970s, right? Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Right, that's Paulo Freire, right? And so they began assassinating, jailing, and exiling Par because it's so infectious. When particularly, and so they began burning and banning all the Western ideas and books and forms of learning, kicking them out, they get it, expelling them, right? And then because it's infectious and it's and it's, and it's biological, the act of learning, right? It's an act of resistance, learning, right? Because the way we think about it is this: naively, so poor black communities now. I would say most indigenous communities around the world. In our naive mind, the purpose of school is to go there, learn about a lot of good things with the intent of inspiring, right? And leaving you with a skill set so that you can be politically, socially, economically empowered. So you're going there to learn all that kind of stuff. And then when you get there and you learn about all kinds of right? And 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 then you can disengage. Right. So but but when people have the opportunity, like we provide in Wilmington, like they did in Brazil and and, and like they did with Ignacia, Dr. Ignacia, Martin Barro, beautiful story. He actually coined liberation psychology. I would argue the most radical form of par. There are lots of par iterations. Right. 1989. Right. He actually got his Ph.D. at the University of Chicago, social psychologist. But he went down there, organized a very revolution and they assassinated him. 
uh, 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 El Salvador's uh, version of their CIA. Well, well-documented story. This is what began to happen, right? So, so these stories and these experiences began to also, right, dovetail off, but also inspire a lot of the civil rights and black power movement uh, groups, right? So, so not only the black, so you have the brown brown berets doing street par. You have the black Black Panther Party. You have the Highlanders, right? White poor people, uh, particularly in the South. But Appalachian Mountain region, which is very expansive, they're still around, right? And 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 so forth and so on, right? You got to check out my street part, our, our workshop, doing one in New York tomorrow. <laughs> I show all of these groups, right? Number a number of educational research groups in prison. Check out the lifers in Philadelphia. They're published. I met them. I went. I went. I went in Graterford, right? I was like, wow. They're there. So right. So 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 the most highest. Keep this in mind. A uh, 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 kind of um 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 reward or whatever is publishing in a tier one journal, right? So that's why I always tell my guys. We tell the doctoral students. A lot of the folk in the streets, like the lifers, realize that. Even though most people aren't going to read the journal articles, that's where the power play is at. Because who can dominate that? Dominates the information. All disciplines have their journals. Right. And that's where that we fight for control of who's the standard of whatever argument that's being made. Right. Even it's harder to get a tier one publication than it is to get a book publication. So it's valued more so in the academy than I would say outside. But people like the lifers and the Highlanders. Right. We realize what was going on. Right. We have to get our skills up. Right. And 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 and, and so there a number of those groups, all that started happening. I would say you kind of had this um, golden period in the U.S. around par now a white kind of mainstream par um, in the 1980s and, and, and 90s, right? And I would say by the early 2000s, they ran that stuff out of the academy, meaning they you have to really have a network to do it at this point. Um, you do see a very spirited argument in the literature around it, theoretically, conceptually, people doing what they can, where they can. Um, What's the, what, what are the arguments, what are the... Uh, sort of the, the the main arguments against it. what what would what would you say is the is the accepted school now if it's not sort of participatory hands on research like that in sociology? So basically, that's a great question, right? So the academy does not want to be in the business of organizing grassroots movements or leadership, right? Right? They're not going to say that outright. Meaning, and so who controls the university, right? Who really has power in it? It's a very fleeting group. Keep that in mind. We're encouraged to leave and go in this, then the third. The institution is really what's permanent, right? But who controls any university? It's really the board of trustees, right? And you do have an administration there, like a president or a provost or a vice provost. Um, um, but their, their contracts and their situation does not necessarily stable like that. No one's job is really stable, with the exception of the faculty who have tenure, right? Um, but so but you can be kept in control now with that in mind right they don't we don't have the capacity f um and and universities in general do not organize an infrastructure where you can train students to go out in the community not only collect data with but train people right um, and um and then kind of organize stuff we're going to keep you busy enough where you can't do that stuff anyway also as an expert as a scholar right quote unquote expert as a scholar Right. As a professor, we don't really have the skills. There's no place you can go in the university in the United States of America right, where you can teach people, you know, a, a cultural mastery of a neighborhood. Right. The only way you can learn culture, you have to be immersed in it. That's it. You can read about it. You can take a class. You can watch a documentary. It will get you somewhere to some extent. Culture is turning over too fast. Right? The new slang is going to be different in another month. 
and you have have to be there to know it, right? And so, 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 I'll hear from a lot of who remain nameless, you know, civic and political leadership in Delaware. They're saying, okay, why isn't UD's ed department, which I'm on faculty into, able to produce these teachers that can connect with the students? And they make the the, the UD students do well in school at UD. But there's no class they could have actually taken, maybe mine's, but um, that would prepare them, right, to walk inside the east side of Wilmington and take you over some of these streets over there, uh, 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 South Ridge, South Ridge Projects. I'm, I'm, we're everywhere. <laughs> Riverside, we're everywhere. We've surveyed thousands of people in the streets of Wilmington, right? So I'm looking at it from that perspective. What no, average, there may be some individuals. Stu- there's no class you've taken. Maybe you read a book or two, but that can go out here and get these children Riverside projects. You live in Rats and Roaches and the Bill, and then now their projects are being gentrified, you know, so their loved ones. So everyone's angry and everyone's, you know, all that's going, and, and you have to now teach a child who's immersed in that environment. Without knowing anything about the environment or the, the culture or what's going on really at all. And you say, well, now I'm, now I'm going to teach you. The, now you're going to take that child and I'm going to teach you the test. <laughs> well, see, I'm again, we go back to that, to the structural thing. I'm a, a completely cynical person. And, you know, it all goes back. People make this point. You know, it was illegal to allow slaves to read. Because yes. if they found out what was going exactly. on in Haiti, if they found out what was exactly. going in Haiti, they'd have overthrown the, the planners. Exactly. And I feel like I can't help but feel like this is the same fucking thing. Absolutely. 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 All right. So keep in mind, the university has a, has an all university, not just UD. UD is not unique in this, but they not also need to be held accountable too. But nonetheless, right, they have a stranglehold on, on the standard of information. That's what's really going on, right? So the information has great value, particularly in this 21st digital age, right? And, and so, so it's not going to undermine itself by producing curriculum. We do have a community-engaged Carnegie initiative. Right. And I would say that's better than nothing. You do have professors that are doing what they can in the community. But a lot of it is, um, be honest with you, at UD and otherwise, and it's not unique to UD, when they say PAR in general, they're just getting people from the community to help collect data for them. That's participatory. That's not action. Right. And you do have grants to take out the word action when they, you know, but my point is, your infant, poor black and brown data is valuable. It's a multi-billion dollar commodity. So if I can just get you to collect 500 surveys for me or a thousand surveys, depending on what sample we're talking about. This, so that's the, pro, that's, the com, that's the community project. And my thing is, street, no, 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 that's not street par. That's exploitation. I think to, to some extent what I'm doing also is exploitation, right? I think we're doing a fairer version of it. But my point is, no, 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 no. We disrupt that process. We're saying for us to have the privilege to benefit from this data, not only do I need your help in collecting it, yes, I need to find 500 crack cocaine dealers, so to speak, right? But in exchange, I'm going to pay you. In exchange, right, we're going to train you in theory, in methodological design, in quantitative and qualitative analysis. I'm going to take you on the road to present at these academic conferences along with the graduate students. You get to also meet, right, nice little network of other faculty from all around the country, which is beneficial, right? We're going to, uh, there's going to be a number of times where you present, I'm going to sit down because they got to see that you can do this. We're going to get you jobs doing uh, 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 as research assistants or associates at places like the University of Delaware. 
right? Or, or, or Christianity Care Hospital, right? Where they hire research associates. I mean, this is a doctor. You're you put them to a doctoral program. And we have a number of examples where people went off to go get their doctorates too. When they begin to realize, they just hang, I said, hang in there with me. You'll see it. You'll be able to connect the dots. And I'm always going to be encouraging you and, 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 and sending you here and sending you there. And I have a number of other folks that I work with, faculty and, 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 and civic and political leaders in, in Wilmington, Delaware, who have been very supportive. And, and we're kind of like this institutional support system. Right. But and, and so how are they learning? Because they're, 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 they're studying their lives. They're studying their, their families and their friends. It's not just a, a, a study on violence or crack cocaine. Or let me see how many times people in between the ages of 16 and 18 in Riverside use X amount of substance. Right. It's 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 not as antiseptic as that. Yeah. I mean, you go as far as um, the methodology of, of creating the, the, the surveys and, and and the background and, and all of it. Yes, sir. And so they're. When you identify these folks and go through the program, they're developing all the material. Yes, sir. First hand. And, and then doing the analysis. Yes, so there's sir. like there's no better there's gonna be no better data and now it's theirs. Yes, sir. And now, right, because we've surveyed thousands, interviewed hundreds, you know, over ten years. I mean, we could throw an event, Rob, and man, I mean, we did a wonderful event years ago, Delaware Center for Contemporary Arts, DCCA. And um they were at the time they wanted a community kind of project because a lot of the folk in there are trained artists, right? And um, so they invited me, you know, and that, and we were looking because we do art shows. We do a bunch of organizing in the community. Yeah, we, I have that down too because even okay. after all of this, no, please yes, go yes. ahead because I did want to talk about this because after all of this, and you know, and the results are published, and you can make some, you know, you can make some observations based on the data. You can make some assumptions or some proposals based on the data. But the other thing you do is. Go tell people to make art, basically, right. which yes. I think is profound. Yes. It's just profound. Yes. And there's so much artistic energy in the streets. So our job really as street park researchers is to identify interests, strengths, and limitations on where they're at, where they're interested in. So if you wanted to do action, we have different ways of doing action, right? But 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 we have an action team, right? Their thing is we need to ta tackle the arts, right? So we put out two mixtapes. We've put out um, one documentary. We're filming now with the current study. Um, uh, uh, so hopefully for a second documentary, we gotta get that funding now. But, um, but we're just taking a bunch of raw footage, interviewing, you know, filming all our interviews, et cetera, et cetera, um, right? And, and, but nonetheless, DCCA, right? So keep in mind, right? I said, okay, we wanna do something on violence and inequality. Um, they wanted local artists. I didn't realize, cause I don't know, I didn't know that local and trained artists or trained and untrained, were, there's a tension there. Right, you know, so train like the academics work hard to police their their borders. Right, you know, we want to. We got one percent of the U.S. has a Ph.D. We don't want too many people getting because we got to preserve the value. You know, if too many people get their Ph.D., the value might as well drop. Right, I gotta make sure. Hold on, right. So we keep a close eye on that. <laughs> but my point is, I begin to realize and see that in the art world, I didn't realize. Ooh. Yeah, we have a, a very close. Well, I have a lot of artist friends actually, but I have a very oh, close okay. friend of mine who's been here, uh, who actually works with uh, DCCA and across the street at Combox. Um, uh, oh, Creative Vision Factory. That's my guy, Michael Combox. That's my guy. And he he said, and sitting in your seat, said the same thing. He's like, you know, you've made it in the Wilmington or Delaware art world when everybody's shitting on what you're doing, <laughs> or has some problem with what you're doing and the tension that's there. You know, between this person's train, not so. Yeah, he he had a he had a few things to say about that very topic. That's Big Mike Kambach. In fact, this show that I'm talking about at DCA now, he was a major co-sponsor and organizer, and obviously, um, 
So, right, we did the show called Wilmington Trap Stars Street Art Exhibition, right? And we wanted everybody there. That's including civic and political leadership, though, right? And um, and Mike was right. We were there planning stages. He began to talk to me about the politics of the art world. Be careful. I couldn't get it until I had to experience it. I was like, oh, right? But um, we organized, uh, uh, and also, I must add, Mike, uh, 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 Christina Cultural Arts Center, um, 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 Ashley over at DCJ, she... We reached out to them. She had her art program through Ferris. Oh, man, they had a whole wing. Um, 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 right? I hope I'm not missing anybody. Definitely some folk at UD. Um, but nonetheless, right, 50 local trained artists, mostly black and brown, mostly from the streets, um, 276 pieces of art, right, all centered around the relationship between inequality and crime, in particular violence, but crime more broadly. Right. So we had so Mike make sure made sure that sneaker art was there. Right. With with the Wilmington Police Department on the side of a Nike. Right. And and it was a wonderful Nike. Right. Around 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 policing inequality or violence. Right. I mean, you had this. It was a real Air Force One. I'm like, they've spent a lot of money on this. But it was but it, it was that creative. Right. We had photography, which showed, you know, a lot of stuff around homicide and violence. But it was very artistic for what it's worth. Right. It was interactive art. Like, you know, um, in terms of making, it was a participatory component for people to come. But DCA can fit 500 people. And on the first or opening night, nearly 1,000 showed up. And by noon the next day, in somewhere in the ballpark of about, because uh, we, we did something that early the next morning, something like three, 400 more people showed up just to be part of that morning, early afternoon event. I barely made it there, you know, from the night before. But my point is, these are the kinds of events that my guys, right, and they get all the credit, have organized through the research program, right? And this, and this is exhilarating. It's inspiring. And, and, and not only that, that, I remember that at that particular show, we organized and hosted, because uh, 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 DCCA has a space, uh, an auditorium space, um, 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 a showcase of several of the artists from our mixtape. All of this is going on at the art show. You know, and it's like, wow. And, and, and we did another art show, Christina Cultural Arts Center, where we gave about 100 of these CDs out. Right. So my point is, it's 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 a mixtape, but it's music around social justice and change without compromising the artists and watering them down. Right. They can talk about change in their natural tongue, you know, with their natural vibrations, you know, police uh, uh, violence or inequality or, or, or poverty or, or incarceration. You, you know, so people's report dot com. Check out the first tape. Our second mixtape is out as well which is called Knowledge is a New Hustle. Um, and so, you know, our street park program has a bunch of tentacles, right? Um, and we're just shaking and moving and doing what we do. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes um, so people can go down and hit it right there. Appreciate it, brother. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, that comes right from that idea that while those economic circumstances and poverty and inequality create so many interactions with the police for reasons i think are obvious just sequestering people where they are um and just violence in general but the artistic spirit the community bond so like i think i, I don't remember what words you used i watched your ted talk oh. uh, from a few <laughs> years ago and I, and I don't know if you use sort of social well-being yeah the level of social but you wouldn't like if you just asked somebody and they just knew about this this is a violent place um if they didn't go through this data, they wouldn't realize that actually the social well-being there and the community spirit yes, yes, is yes. extremely high. Yes, yes, yes. It's amazing. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, maybe you can go over some. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about how the data was collected and analyzed and then some of the results and sort of proposals that you're able to make based on that stuff. Yeah. Great question. Um, so our first study, right, we have we have three other studies since um, and one of which is a national study that we're working on now. But that first study um, began in the training of the of the first part team, 15 members, 12 men, three women between ages of 22 48, I believe, um, right, began in, in late November. We were funded by the American Recovery Reinvestment Act through a state block grant, right, which was put out by um, Barack Obama. And it was a job stimulus grant at that time, right? So the, we came together with the mayor's office in particular, um, also United Way and a bunch of other organizations um, around Delaware um, to work on that grant, Hope Commission and, and a bunch of folk. But so... Our job was we want 15 folk six months to a year out of prison. And we're going to give them a kind of research activist job position. First, kind of like, oh, what's that? <laughs> but um, meaning, would these guys really do all of what you're claiming? Now, I had did a, a that was my dissertation in New York and New Jersey, right? So I knew it could work. Um, and this opportunity, the grant gave me the resources to really do it, to scale up for my dissertation. My dissertation was just for my friends. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, who are, and a number of them were active and, you know, and we had to make it happen how we had to make it happen in terms of resources. We collected over 400 surveys out there and, you know, did a bunch of interviews. So that came together really good. But and now I wanted to scale up, do a, a real study, really train some folk in the ways that I've thought about, et cetera. Right. So we made it happen. We began collecting data uh, summer, um, particularly we interviewed data in the spring of 2010, but summer data in terms of survey data in, in the summer of 2010. Right. And we're going out seven to 18 page questionnaire. Um, we're going out seven to one o'clock at night. 2010 at that time, that was a year in which a homicide record was broken at that time. It's a hot summer we were in the, and it was in the east side and south bridge neighborhoods. And we collected over 500 surveys from the ages of to be in the streets um, between ages of 18 to 35, men and women. We collected over five, 520 surveys. Really more than that, but 520 usable surveys, right? So we're walking around with hundreds of dollars in cash. It's $5 in cash to fill out a survey, $10 in cash to complete an interview. And interviews lasted for an hour or two. And those were done inside a more private space. Could be their apartment, but we also had a space as well um, where we would interview. Um, so that was the first study. What did we learn? Well, we learned nearly 70%, 70% of our sample um, was, un the men were unemployed, right? Um, about two-thirds of the sample, including men and women, were unemployed. Don't know if you've been around in the neighborhood where most of the men are unemployed, right? That's a certain kind of neighborhood, right? The poverty is extreme. Because of our study, we learned that 100%, 100%, one more time, 100% of black boys in Southbridge were dropping out of school, right? And anytime you have large numbers of any population doing any one thing, large numbers of any population doing any one thing, right? That's stat 101, method 101, that's structural. It would be impossible for any population to actively do one thing, right? This is the kind of argument we brought around to the mayor's office, city council, state, right? And, you know, board of education. And they don't, at that point, because a lot of them are PhDs and scholars, they, they realize it would be something else is going on. And, 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 and the students are being removed. That's the only thing that's going on right now, right? I don't know exactly how that is, but I can strongly conclude that. Right. It would be impossible. Right. So, you know, they didn't push back. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't make that kind of mistake then. Right. And they went in and 
and um, um, we brought a lot of attention to it. News Journal ran a big article at that time. Also, University uh, Wilmington's educational system was caught up in a federal investigation by Arnie Duncan's department. At that time, he was Secretary of Education under Obama. I think it was out of five um, school districts, Christina School District, five districts in the in the in the country, but Christina School District here because it houses mostly most of the poor black students. Um, and they all were being investigated, these five districts throughout the country, for excessive expulsion and suspensions of black boys. Excessive, right? And that's illegal, right? So that's when Arnie Duncan came in, Race to the Top Money came in um, uh, 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 under um, Arnie Duncan and, and Obama. And, and then he's talking about like $100 million plus dollars. And we don't know where none of that went because it didn't help the kids. Right? And this is written about in the news journal too. Lots of criticism and and um, I mean, that happens a lot with these big bucket grants, though, right? Where does the money go? And it's definitely not going to the population. You know, we see that with WEAC and, and so many other instances. You should know, right? So we found high levels of unemployment, high levels of uh, school dropout, uh, high levels of intergenerational school dropout. Uh, 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 we found actually um, 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 low, right? We found instances of violence. It's a, it can be a violent space. But keep in mind, we found that it was a small group of folk, right? In 2000, we released a report in 2013, was responsible for a lot of not only the victimization, I mean, uh, 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 violence, perpetration, but a small group also was being victimized, right? It wasn't a whole bunch of random folk. Same folk generally are showing up and... This is what Christiana Care Hospital said. This is what the mayor's office said. This is what the chief of police at that time said when we had a meeting. Same folk generally are showing up to the emergency room for shootings or being shot or stabbings. Or same people are showing up. General people are showing up in terms of jail and incarceration. And it's not a wild, wild west scenario at all, right? There are groups, you know, not to say that there aren't mistakes and some, some wild, wild west scenario kind of stuff happens, but in general, the idea that I will go out there and I'm walking around and somebody, that's why I know I can go out there at 11 o'clock at night and go to where they're selling crack cocaine, right? And go to where they're selling heroin and know that nothing's going to happen to us. And we just don't show up. But keep in mind, like, it, it, it isn't, if it was that disruptive, uh, Governor Carney would dispatch the National Guard yesterday. Any city would do that, right? So, so, so keep in mind, homicide uh, 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 is at about a 25 year low in the country, right? Even in Chicago. He, one homicide is one too many. I will say that. But even in Chicago, so you have to begin to say, what the hell is going on here, right? And I did a lot of work in Chicago, right? You know, as in the 90s, gang and intervention kinds of stuff. Robert Taylor Holmes were, uh, just before they came down, I was out there then and we would work with these guys closely, right? Um, 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 but in small and medium-sized cities, violence is going up. They have less support, less technology. That's what's really bringing the violence down, not stop and frisk. It's the surveillance and the technology. It's, very, it's much harder to get away with a homicide today than in 1980 or 1990. That's what's, so it's not, it's not Bloomberg, it's not Giuliani, it's not these net wide, it's none of these initiatives. We, that, no, 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 no. Are you no. telling me stopping random people on the street and accosting no. them and just patting them down doesn't work? And we found, who, who would have thought? Those scholars who looked at New York City data found, uh, 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 interestingly enough, when they looked at stopping first data, um, the, interestingly enough, I think it's the New York Civil Union's uh, report, but. Uh, they found that um, on per capita, white people, particularly white males, were more likely to be stopped for a gun than any other population. In that New York, in the stop and frisk program, right? Yeah. So, 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 you would think, right? Black boys, right? Young and young Latino were more. No, 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 no. 
<laughs> right? So it was lots of interesting nuggets. Something like 90% of everyone being stopped didn't do anything. Right? And so you're talking about tens of thousands of people over um, 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 several years. And so my point is, right, so we can begin to, 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 to understand, particularly through the par. Right, but we can begin to understand how crime actually is moving on the ground. How homicide is usually people that know one another. It's a within group um, phenomenon, and in a small city with less resources in comparison to the big cities, um, it's a lot of love here, right? So it's a lot of love it comes in a way on the ground in this kind of small town way. At least in my comparison to my NYC reference, right? But 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 the love can spiral out of control. And just as easily, right, it's a double-edged sword, the violence can spiral out of control, right? Because keep in mind, 8 million people in New York, if you get shot or killed in Staten Island, I might not hear it in Manhattan. Anybody gets shot and killed in Wilmington, A, I'm 10, 15 minutes from around one in any part of the city, and everybody hears about it. So my point is, we see the uptick of violence and homicide in small cities and medium-sized cities. Um, and it's just, so keep in mind, we're also working on a book called Murder Town USA, but it's in that book project where we're talking about the small city effect. And for us, that's what explains the violence and or crime um, in a way that most analysis is not really grappling with. So uh, is there any, do you have some of this research or work going on presently or is there plans to do another one of these uh, soon? And yes. in, in different areas, have you identified a new cohort of folks who are you going to put through the program, all of that? Yes, yes, yes. Um, also, just really quickly from that first study, we found most folk had high levels of psychological well-being, high levels of esteem, high levels of family well-being. Um, they loved themselves, thought they were good people. These are the crack cocaine dealers, so to speak, um, right? We found high levels of uh, social well-being, giving back to the neighborhoods, uh, uh, supporting or supplementing the income and uh, of many we found a lot of that right keep in mind again kind of like acting white theory most scholars would argue most people would probably think that this population has low levels of psychological and social well-being low levels of esteem right and that narrative first came particularly out of brown versus board please note which is why we wanted to study it in the streets of wilmington and still studying it with these three other studies that I'm going to talk about in two seconds, right? Brown versus board, the way they want it is because they argued. And Wilmington, Delaware is a brown versus board city, right? They argued, they argued a bunch of things. But one of the things that they argued, right, was that poor black kids or black people in general, they did a study on children, right, young children too. And they just generalized it to everybody else. It was actually a bad piece of science, right? But from that doll study or doll studies, and a number of theoretical works and books written at that time, and they argued that black folk suffered from black self-hatred, that they hated themselves. Now, why is this important to what I'm talking about with the streets? Well, they argued that because the, the, the argument was that, 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 that their esteem was so low that if they had the opportunity to sit next to white children whose esteem were so high, that I guess through social osmosis, these black children would learn how to love themselves again. That's what passed Brown versus Board. That's a narrative that's talked about in the neighborhoods, like to this day, because neighborhoods still hate Brown versus Board too. So people like, for instance, Zora Neale Hurston at that time, number of black folk at that time, what are you doing? 
Meaning, you know, talking to 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 to, to Brown versus Board attorneys, you know, Lewis Redding here and, and a bunch of other folk elsewhere. What are y'all doing? I sit around with Brown versus Board lawyers and we talk about this today. Yeah, I, and I want to. Uh, this is a good time to bring <coughs> up something because, unfortunately, we have like a lot of hate listeners and people who might not be think, <laughs> thinking on the right plane. Um, and so we've had. <laughs> We've had arguments about Joe Biden because we have political stuff that we do, right? <laughs> and and people will mention when I mention that the guy was uh, segregationist adjacent, they will mention that, well, there was a lot of pushback on desegregation even from the black community. Now, that is true. What you're saying is completely true. Um, there's there's a, there's reasons to make that argument, but this is a when you hear this argument from people like people who are supporting joe biden it's not in good faith they're not making the argument that you're arguing and i just want to point that out to anybody who might be listening <laughs> yes, yes do you know what i mean yes what you're it's you're making a very complicated yes complex yes. argument yes they're probably racist so i will say and, I, and i'm going to answer your question directly about joe biden but i would say um right so they're arguing that these kids hate themselves and through and so it was a legal strategy i don't think Lewis Redding and and um, anyone thought that um, these kids, no one thought that these kids have low self-esteem and all of that. Maybe some some folk in the black community, but for the most part, right? But it was a way in the 1954 society to, right, if, if the kids are being, if have this much psychological detriment, mind you, black self-hatred theory, that's what it was called at that time, um, was born out of what was also called, which preceded it was something called Jewish self-hatred. It was began in the early 1900s, particularly after World War One, right? And Jews were having a certain experience in the country, and people like Kurt Lewin and other Jewish scholars began studying it for uh, uh, intensely, right? And then they began working with black scholars because they were also an outgroup black people to look at black self-hatred. Then it all kind of culminates in the 1954 case. It became useful research to use right, as legal strategy. Right. So they get to push through. Now, with that said, right, this now there's this narrative that black kids hate themselves, low self-esteem, don't want to do well in school. It was much easier. Right. So it's much easier to make that argument. I always. Right. And we can find no a, a reified concept. It sounds true. We can find very little evidence out there in, 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 in terms of empirical evidence that would actually substantiate something like that. Right. I, I go. I'm in a number of poor black communities. I don't see a bunch of people walking around hating themselves. I'm one of the few organizations or country uh, 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 research programs that are actually documenting this. Right. Uh, Abigail Jones, who writes Murdertown USA for Newsweek, and we helped her out a lot in terms of getting inside the community. Um, good woman, though. Um, um, addresses this issue around psychological and social well-being in that article. She even calls a bunch of scholars from around the country who vouch or support the argument. Right. So nonetheless, that was some of the big findings. But I think the biggest social and psychological well-being and they want to give back. They want to learn. They love their family. They love their communities. Right. Cool. We're now funded. Uh, so three projects later, we have we're in the north side and west side, much more ambitious, larger, larger project. Eight hundred surveys we've collected, 45 page instrument, um, 25 core members now. Um, and we have a, a, a upwards of 100 right uh, members total, but 75 of which are what we call subsidiary members or honorary street par associates. Right. So a number of my guys out of the 25 core have now um, leading their own programs 
under the street par like banner, if you will. It's their own thing though, outright autonomous. So you have the Bard McGriff who's running um, 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 Game Changers. Uh, uh, he works at the ACLU. He's running Game Changers, which is also made up of a bunch of folk from the community doing this kind of activism around criminal justice system, right? You have Coley Harris who's running uh, uh, along with Daryl Chambers, uh, 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 they're running uh, the Community Intervention Team, which is sponsored by DHSS, so the governor's office, right? Where wherever, any homicide that happens in the city, they get a phone call and they go to the team. They also they go to the site, excuse me, and they also work really hard with both sides, right? So perpetrator and victim, um, when, when and where they can. Definitely the victim and their families and all of that, right? Um, so where where we, we you know so my point is so we're about hundred. We just had a meeting the other day at um, African uh, uh, Mother Union Church in Wilmington, Reverend Livingston's church. Um, and he allows us to use his space sometimes. And he's like a mentor to our group. Um, you know, and so he's like, oh my God, this is your team? And like, you know, 60, 70 people showed up. That's including grad students and everyone from UD and, and faculty and everyone coming together to have a meeting. You know what I'm saying? Um, so meaning it's real. I guess that's that's the point. But we got north side, west side. We're looking at violence. We're looking at the relationship between uh, structural opportunity, health status, right? And and to what extent that is predictive of experiences and perpetration of violence. And our community sample is between the ages of 16 now to 54, four age groups, right? Got to be involved with the streets um, or had real experiences in the streets, right? Uh, 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 um, um, so they gave us, and there are two parts to this study. We've interviewed nearly 100 people too, and now we're getting ready, ready to run a series of focus groups. Um, we got 800 surveys, 400 blood pressure tests with the streets, right? So now they're, because they're looking to create these community health hubs in the neighborhoods. Keep in mind, anyone gets shot and killed, shot, stabbed, hurt in Wilmington, it's 45 minutes before they get to the hospital. That's structural violence. Literally, right? So someone gets shot here, right? And we have a Wilmington campus. No, they will not. No, 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 no. They got to wait for them to come from Newark. Right, you got to get there. You got to do what you got to do. And then you got to get it back to Newark campus. So we're in conversations with Christiana Care Hospital, right? We're going, this, they're very aware of that. This is happening all around the country. Certain communities have fought back successfully. Most of us haven't yet, right? And this also explains the homicide rate, uh-oh, in Wilmington. Right. They, they're just bleeding out. So in so so our agreement with Christianity care, because we couldn't just look the other way. This is street par. Right. So 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 what we're and, and, and you know, so what, what we agreed was they provided us support. Really appreciate additional support uh, 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 to, to 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 do what uh, like. A, so you have something called a stop the bleed campaign, national stop the bleed campaign. Right. And we brought it to Wilmington. Um, we called it Wilmington under pressure because some of the leadership didn't like that. Stop the bleed thing. They're very, uh, <laughs> they worry more about the messaging than actually what you're doing. That murder town, too, was the same thing. Yeah. Yes, they, yes, they yes, yes. They no, won't yes, make, yeah. Yes, I mean, yes. If you, you could have a political thing that's going to, you could, have a, you could yes. have a social thing that'll help thousands yes. of people, but if you name it something that's not politically expedient, they'll run away from it like the plague. Very, they have a lot of, um, a lot of real courage. We have real courageous <laughs> politicians. I don't know if you've noticed. That's exactly They're real what leaders. Yeah. <laughs> Biden, I think, <clears throat> yes, lots of black folk to this day has great disdain for Brown versus Board, right? So keep in mind, the Biden family has been very kind to me over the years, especially Ashley, also um, her brother, Bo Biden, before he passed away, would meet with the PAR team. And we had a really good relationship under him with the Attorney General office, 
Um, but Ashley, she's hired some of my guys here, real jobs too, right? You know, as case manager and, and stuff like that. And um, and we've done work together. Um, you know, I, I don't know her father well. I met him once or twice um, at an event, at a big event. So, I, you know, um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure he's aware of, um, you know, what I do um, and all of that. I think, you know, ideologically, we sit on different sides of, you know, criminal justice policy, you know, of employment, of educational you know, kinds of things. So that's where I would say, um, 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 so I, I, I would argue that I don't agree with, um, so I would say that he's not necessarily talking about Brown versus Board and or, um, and or folk may be using him in terms of understanding the black. Our thing was we want our own neighborhoods, our own communities and our own resources for our own schools, right? That's what we want. You know what I mean, cool. Stay in your neighborhood. It's cool. Hey, I understand, right? Whatever. Keep in mind, blackness. Keep this in mind, right? This is the kind of thing that we learned about structural violence in my research program and the kind of message that we spout everywhere we go, even when we have our private meetings with whomever, right? At the end of the day, black Americans descended of the slave South, right? And we're speaking from an empirical standpoint, not just rhetorical, right? Or the economic bottom cast of the society. We cannot be afforded, not if everyone wants their privilege, me too, right? You have to have a bottom cast, right? Derek Bell writes a lot about this, um, particularly check out his work, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, classic work that talks about the permanence of racism, which is the subtitle, right? The idea that you can unearth all, it requires a bottom cast. Yeah, privilege is a zero-sum game. Right, so our thing was, they're not trying to, Give us the resource and let's build. And no, 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 no. That, that's never. Eighty percent of all black folk were enslaved during the period of slavery, and eighty percent of all black folk remained working class up until 1965. I would argue seventy-five percent of black Americans, at the very least, live at near below the poverty line, right? And you have large-scale unemployment, school failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is socially engineered because you must have a bottom caste. That, to me, best explains Brown versus Board. Now, you can get caught up, in, not you necessarily, but with Biden's argument. I think most white folk at that time and, and now, and that's including the liberals, right? I keep in mind, they're liberal and they're all about justice and all of that. As I say in my class when we read some Derek Bell, they're really liberal until it's time for the black kids, the poor black kids from places like Riverside Project to show up to their schools, to their children's school. They're going to fight all day long and then you talk about that. Right. So my point is like my, my, my realtor, right? I live in a mixed neighborhood. A lot of white folk live in my neighborhood, mixed neighborhood. My, I had a real good relationship with my realtor and it's my first home. Right. And I love it. I'm thinking it's nice. Right. A, a reward from God. And she told me because she knew I was a little naive. Now, if too many black folk move in this neighborhood, like five to 10 percent, I just want you to know she's black, too. Your value of your home may stop, maybe drop. Right. Won't have the same value. Right, and that was, it was a wake up call. I didn't know what she was talking about. Then I had to think about it. Right, same thing at UD or most other places. Too many black folks show up. We only got about five percent black students, five percent black faculty. Too many black folks show up. Black folk will use, leave the university, right? Because the value would drop of the degree. So you must monitor it. Right, and that's happening across industry. Right, so my thing is, we talking about justice. I talk about that structural violence, the permanence of racism. My people is a bottom caste. I, I look at my guys. How are we going to make an empirical argument around this? Right? Because this is a winner right here. This ain't, and we just keep in mind, we're the banking capital of the world. Oh, there's all kind of structural violence going on around here. This, this two tailed city. 
know what I'm saying? So, 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 so how do we bring, how do we in the most smartest, wisest way, not only do research around this, but also, but also, but also do action and organizing around, because this is the crux of the problem, right? Derek Bell reminds us, right? He talks about interest convergence theory, right? White liberals will support all out. You always have small segments. So I know you, but I'm just saying in general. I'm not a liberal. When their interests converge, right? We have very little evidence that white, right? Like, like I, I gave, a, I gave, a, I gave this a, a sermon. I give a lot of sermons at church lately, right? I, I've seen it as an honor. Um, I gave it. This is maybe a few years ago. This is right, right around the time Donald Trump it was in Wilmington. Right, church remained nameless. Um, um, and big, big congregation and. Oh man, you know it was an honor, and and, and at that time people were beginning to uh, 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 march on Washington, and because of Trump, you had the women's movement. Now, from a black perspective, I said in my sermon, I was talking about Jesus. What would he do? Well, in this perspective, I mean, since y'all care so much, justice and da 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 da. From my perspective, meaning poor black neighborhoods, it's orchestrated to some extent, not all. But if you cared so much, and I do a lot, believe a lot of people do, I just it's a lot of technology in it, right? Then why aren't we stomping and marching all over the place for those people who live two or three blocks to the left of that church in downtown Wilmington or two to three blocks to the right? You don't got to go to D.C. to see some of the worst uh, 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 forms of structural injustice that this country has to offer. Why, why, why isn't business stops when it comes for? Look at how these people. I mean, look how these people live. They're good people. I'm not talking about them. Look at how the, How could it, it? So we ran into statistical models, meaning meaning researchers. It would be impossible for poor people to work that work themselves out of that poverty. All right. So for what it's worth, the message went over well in the church. Things haven't changed yet. But what I am saying is that is the crux. A, that's the heartbeat for what we do, right? But that's the crux. It's not until we, so I think the first phase is awareness. Now, when you realize your future is tied to my future, but no, 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 no. The, 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 the material well-being of your most vulnerable segment of your people is tied to the most, the most vulnerable segment until, until we live like that. And that's what our research program is about. Continually reminding people ain't nothing changing, right? I'll stop here. I promise. And this got in the front page. No, I love this. You must be good at this preaching. <laughs> I'm into it. And this got on the front page of the news journal. I did a did a talk at, at which we organized, meaning the people. It was at the Chase Center it was years ago for uh, a New Jim Crow coalition uh, around criminal justice system. We probably got nearly anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people there, right? And, you know, so it's me, it's Chris Coons, it's at that time Governor Markell, it's 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 Mayor Williams, right? And some other folk, and we're giving speeches on stage one after the other, right? But it was there. But I say this anywhere. But I wanted to say it there, too, so folk can understand how much this, what this means to us. But if you can comfortably go to sleep at night with all of this madness going on, then I promise you, you are the problem. Whoever you are, right? And 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 it's not a slight. It's 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 actually I I'm saying it more so as a matter of fact. This does not stop until you can't sleep anymore, right? I gave a sermon last week. Come think about it, and I said that there too. Meaning this is the message. I'm not you know forgive me for my arrogance. What I am trying to express is this is the message we bring everywhere through right the experience of research and activism.
Now, if you care, this is what it means. Other than that, we're looking at some convenient form of social justice. And that's cool, too. But my thing is, right, as a society, we have to be clear because what's going on in these neighborhoods that we in, this is, this is, this is urgency, right? And, 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 and that's that word urgency doesn't even describe. That's the best. It's, 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 we, we, it, it's a, we have to respond like yesterday. And, and, and we're convinced that the, that the civic and political leadership, um, they understand what's going on and they are okay with leaving a segment behind. Right, I'm, I'm going to stop there. But, but, but that's, that's, that's who we are, Wilmington Street Park Program. Uh, we had a guest several months ago, Nathan Robinson, who uh, is the editor of Current Affairs magazine. He lives in New Orleans. He wrote a book about socialism, and his argument for why you should be a socialist basically starts just like that. He, does, he has a video online, a short video, where he's walking down a street in the lower French Quarter that goes over to the Marigny called the Esplanade. And the Esplanade has all of these huge old mansions, um, a lot of different uh, architecture because it was French, it was Spanish, et cetera. Um, a lot of those old mansions have been divided up into fancy condominiums or, 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 or flats there for people on holiday or go, come, to, you know, come to New Orleans. And so a lot of those places stay empty uh, most of the time while you know, just a couple blocks uh, away from the river uh, in the in the little stoops and doorways of Bourbon Street and Royale, there are homeless people sleeping mm. on steps. Mm. Mm. Now, until you can look at that and say, "This is fucked up," we have to. I can't sleep at night. This is hurting me. Instead, this is not something's wrong here. Yes, sir. Until you can look at that and say that none of that's going to yes, change. Sir. And that was that was his point. That was your point. And it's it's profound and it's a challenge to everybody. And I hope That's people true. start taking yeah. this. I hope people start taking this seriously. It has a lot to do. We won't get into your politics. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, this is what uh, uh, our favorite candidate for president will say. You have to look to your left and look to your right and decide whether I'm going to fight for somebody I don't know. That's right. Who's not like me. That's right. But that's, what we, that, that's, that's the right. entire concept of all of this. Yes, sir. And we're all, like you just said, we're all works in progress. Me too, right? I think it's the first step for change, recognizing who you are, your part you play in it. I think, you know, you and I are probably much better versions, right, of, of the ultimate enemy or whoever, we're, we're, you know, opposition that we're talking about. But at the end of the day, we all, uh, to some extent, share or have shared some responsibility, right? And my thing is, right, getting folk to recognize that. And right now, some of this, so structural violence, right? A theory created by Johan uh, uh, um, Galtung in 1969, I believe it's from uh, uh, um, Finland. He's a scholar, right? But he has a three-part theory on structural violence. And one of the dimensions is cultural violence. But it's this argument around cultural violence where it best represents the false consciousness, the indifference, the numbness. Um, it's like we want to do social justice, right? Somewhere between 12 and 2 and... Uh, or maybe a little later, but we got to be out just in time so we can do happy hour now, you know, and we don't want our weekends to be taken up. Right. And whether we realize it or not, we have slipped into that way of being. You know what I'm saying? And 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 so my thing is his argument, Tongue, among many, it's not like the gentleman that you just mentioned, Derek Bell, critical race theory writ large, um, is just reminding us that in this fast paced society, 
Um, we all are vulnerable to losing a piece of our humanity. And matter of fact, to survive in this place, right? Like my Jewish doctor advisor said once, right? And she's very successful, one of the most popular social psychologists in the world. She said this to me as a doctor student once. It's very difficult to do well um, at your craft, whatever that is, and not step on somebody's toes at some point. It's just this game we are in is just too ruthless. You know what I'm saying? And I can see the ruthlessness and the competition among academics at UD. And it's just business, though, and it's not personal. <laughs> right. well, that's, the old, that's the old adage, right? That's the old adage about academia. It never has the, the, the battles been so so tough for the, and the stakes so small. <clears throat> <laughs> so, but it's cultural violence, and it's it's a kind of slow meandering, uh, uh, but lethal and ruthless, you know, kind of indifference. Like where you just, you know, it took some doctoral students over there to Egypt, right? I was actually caught up in a Mubarak uprising at that time. UD and a whole bunch of other flying side of there. But oh, I did hear there was a, there was a, uh, UD students there during the revolution. Yes. So I took some of them UD students up on a roof, meaning our guy did right to show because they're garbage and. Cairo is a lot of it is on roofs. I'm not sure why, but they probably don't have the landfills or whatever. But a lot of garbage is there. The students up there, we saw a homeless person. You know, homeless person came over to us speaking. So it was Arabic, couldn't really understand, right? She, you know, she looked homeless, whatever that means. Um, my students, or you know, a number of them, ran away, screaming, you know, being American. Right, and my guide shoes him away, shoes her away. Excuse me, like get a, you know, speaks in Arabic to her. Right, they make sure we're okay, yada yada yada. And then he runs back <laughs> to the homeless woman, and he's giving her what she, what he can out of his pocket, and he's saying something to her in Arabic. I would imagine apologizing, saying, you know, da da da, da I'm tour guiding with these Americans, and um, and I didn't move, so I was near him. And I actually gave her, gave her some money, too. And I think one or two of my other students eventually came over and did the same thing. And he explained to me, not the other students, um, in Islam, you can't do that. Like, in the Western society, you know, homeless people, we treat them a certain way. And it's socially acceptable. In Islam, and definitely in their society, that is, woo! Like, you could get excoriated by people around you for doing that. It's a cultural moral. You don't do that. If you don't have it, you don't have it. Um, but you never disrespect the homeless. And, and, and if you have it, you do give. Um, and so he didn't want to undermine the situation with me, but when he was cool enough, he explained, you know, he, I'm like, I'm good. He explained to me what was going on there. He says, I'm not going to say anything. It's cool. Y'all could do whatever. But I cannot do that. You know, if somebody in my society found out I treated someone like that, um, I can't go home at night, you know. So they have, you know, not to say anything is perfect there because it's not, but at least in that instance, they found a way to pres a, to preserve a, a piece of their humanity, you know. Um, and here it's just business, man. We got to do what we got to do, you know. And, you know, we just moving and we just slowly rock to sleep. And we just, you know, doing, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, this, this system is built around allowing the people who want to ignore it to ignore it. Yes, sir. I mean, again, that's why I said yes, the, the, I rail about the police here because it's just a mechanism to sequester people so other people don't have to interact with anyone. Because the last thing they want to do is have to think about it because otherwise they won't be able to sleep at night just like I can. You got it. I hear you, brother. I hear you. <laughs> Folks, we've come to the end of another uh, beautiful. <laughs> I, this was I, this is one of my favorites because I got the I got like. I'm not, I don't know. I was into it. <laughs> I was into it Because you bro. know it, man. So it's www.patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Give us a patronage. Come on. You know you want to. 
five ten dollars a month. Uh, we're at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Um, I just want to thank uh, Professor Payne for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everybody. We're still trying to get these political prisoners out. We got Lula out. Chelsea Manning's still in. Excuse me. We need to write her letters. We need to get her out. Left is best. Left is best.